0: How are you doing this morning? Did everyone survive the ice apocalypse of Houston? Hey, just thank the Lord we're not in Atlanta, right? It could be much worse, yeah. Um, you know, I was preparing for today, and I just gotta talk about Mark for a second, because I don't think there's any way I could cover his 20-page document today. I don't, I don't know how he teaches it, first of all. I don't know how he writes it, but I do have the conviction that Nobody should ever, ever say on the face of the planet, I don't have time to do this. When you look at what Mark Lanier accomplishes on a daily or weekly basis, you know what I mean? It's just kind of challenging to me. So uh, we're going to continue this context Bible thing that came out of his and Pastor David's mind, um, which I love. And the reason I love it is because it's a reminder to us that the whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole Bible. The Old Testament anticipates the coming of Christ. The Gospels, of course, recount the coming of Christ. And the rest of the New Testament reflects upon the implications of Christ's coming and anticipates his second coming. And so when we look at the Bible in this way and we focus on the passage from John today and then the the thought processes of the Jewish people that probably undergirded what John was writing because he's writing to Greek-speaking Jews. So it's important for us to understand what they would have understood about the Lord and then how Christ builds upon that, challenges them to reveal that Jesus is truly the Messiah. And so we've got an interesting collection of verses today building up to where John kind of rearranges them to show the, the deity and glory and authority of Jesus, as you heard Pastor David talk about um, this morning. John. The book of John. is really a, a book of new beginnings. John is establishing in chapter 1 a new creation narrative, and in chapter 2 it's almost as if he's challenging the people to see a, a new exodus And that's why we'll spend a lot of time today talking about the the plagues and the the movement of the people of God from out of Egypt. But John is specifically writing to the people of God to create for them a new narrative as he formulates a new people. This weekend, my wife and I just recently bought a house. My wife Jordan is in the audience today. I won't make her stand up because she would kill me, but uh, she's here. But we just got a house. And so this uh, weekend, we decided that we were going to start decorating something. I've lived in an apartment for 12 years, okay? So I haven't had a house for a very long time. And so when you move from a house to an apartment, you got to buy some more stuff, right? Because you don't have enough stuff to cover the walls and that kind of thing. So we decided this weekend we were going to go uh, get some stuff for the walls. Well, we went to Pier 1 because I love Pier 1. I'm interesting like that. I like decorating, but I'm also married, so it's okay. All right. no questions I got the eye it's the Lord blessed me with it and I I had to use it for his glory right I also watch football okay it's okay we can have multiple uh talents yes interests um, anyway so we went to pier one and we were having the discussions that all married people have at least Couples where the guy cares about decorating it all. You're like, okay, do you like this? No, I don't like that. That kind of thing, right? Well, we found this mirror, and it's like 50 pounds, all right? But we said, let's get this mirror, and we'll put it in our, in our entryway. And so we got it, and I took it home, and I went and bought the anchors, you know, from Lowe's, because you got to anchor it in the sheetrock, otherwise it's going to fall down. And so I got the anchors, I measured the mirror, and I was putting, I put the holes in the wall, and I started to put the the anchors in, and the plastic things just kept breaking off. I was like, this is not good. we got these brand new walls, and we waited months to put the first hole in them because you don't want to do that, you know, with your brand new walls. And I put the anchor, it kept breaking off, and this hole just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And finally, we got in there, but then Jordan said, Jared, when we try to put it on the wall, my screw does not line up with the mirror. Well, here's what I did. Being the careful, diligent, detailed man that I am, I measure the length of the mirror, not the length of the holes. ever done that before? Yep. I did that. And so we're sitting there with these big gaping holes and our brand new wall and the foyer. Not the thing that I wanted to decorate the front of the house with, right? And so I'm, I'm a perfectionist by nature, and so I'm just mad at myself. So I go to Lowe's, get the putty, start putting the hole, like filling up the putty in the wall anyway. Basically, I had to do a whole remodeling project and our brand new home, and the foyer. And what we see today is Jesus doing a remodeling project. He's coming in, he's knocking down the walls, and he's saying, you know what, guys, I'm about to build something new. And why is he doing that? Why in John chapter 2 is Jesus remodeling the temple? Well, because the temple had lost what it was supposed to signify to the Jewish people. And to unfold for you today what it was supposed to signify to the Jewish people, we're going to go back and walk to the, Te- the Old Testament. Beyond that, this escapade, this situation that John recounts is happening during the Passover, which is also supposed to be a reminder to the people of God about the Lord's unique forming and provision for them. And yet what we see in John chapter 2 is that they are not remembering the Lord as they were supposed to remember him. And they are not honoring the house of the Lord as they were supposed to honor the house of the Lord. And so I want to build for you the context then that allows us to read John chapter 2 with the dramatic effect that it's supposed to have. All right, turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. And remember today what... Pastor David has already said, John chapter 2, where the wedding at Cana and then followed by the cleansing of the temple is meant to communicate the deity of Christ, the authority of Christ, the signs that John recounts. Remember, the whole purpose of John writing is to motivate in us belief. I'm writing you these things so that you may Believe, And he's giving us these signs in John chapter 2 and then throughout the gospel of John that are to affirm in us justification for belief in Jesus Christ. He's displaying his authority over the physical things. He's at a wedding with his mom. His mom says, hey Jesus, they're running out of wine. Turn this water into wine. Now I know we're all very uncomfortable with that passage as Baptists. But here's what it displays. That Jesus has authority over water to make it whatever he wants to make it. Jesus and the miraculous events can wield creation to accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish. To both bring about judgment upon his enemies or bring about salvation for his people. The Lord, who created all things, can use creation in whatever way he deems acceptable to accomplish his purposes. Beyond that, he's saving the best for last. Right? Remember that past, remember the the discussion around the the wedding at Cana? Jesus turns the water into wine. It's good wine. Right? That's part of the, the narrative here, that what Jesus makes is the best. Is that just ordinary wine or the wine that you keep to the end of the the week-long, month-long marriage festivities because people can't really taste it anymore for reasons we won't talk about, right? He's bringing the best, the best. And a lot of commentary suggests that that's the exact same thing he's doing in a more cosmic way. The law wasn't the best, You would think maybe the end of the law would be like the end of the wine. It's the worst. Spring it out. It's the end. But no, what Jesus is showing us is that he is here to bring about something better than the law. Something better for the people of God. New wine and new wineskins because the Lord is doing something new. He is formulating a new people. He is bringing about newness to all of creation that has been soiled by depravity and fallenness. Get the picture that John is painting. It is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture to affirm in us belief that Jesus is worthy of worship, that he is worthy of being our Savior and our Lord. In John, the miraculous affirms Christ's authority over all things, both physical and spiritual. Spiritual. And in Cana, we see this ultimately pointing to the great heavenly feast that you and I will sit around for eternity with Jesus with in Revelation 21, 2. And in our passage of focus today, we're going to focus on the cleansing of the temple. His deity is further affirmed by the zeal he displays for his father's house during a time when the people of God were supposed to remember God for his powerful display. The signs were important because they are firm in us and for the people of God, the deity of Christ. And remember, the idea of signs proving God's worth is not a new thing. It's established in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 29 to 31. The Lord has appeared to Moses. He's given the, the list of excuses why he cannot be the deliverer of the people of God. And so the Lord raises up Aaron to help him, and then he sends them to the people of God. He says, go to the elders and show them what I have given to you so they will believe that I, God, Yahweh, am forming them into a new people and I'm about to rescue them in a miraculous way from Egyptian bondage. Verse 29, Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Signs lead to belief. Belief leads to worship. Pattern throughout scripture that John is just building on today. And then, of course, Pharaoh, chapter 5, verse 2. Aaron and Moses approached Pharaoh and said, hey, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, let my people go. Uh, ah, yeah, yeah. Remember that? BBS? Okay. Y'all didn't know you all going to get a concert this morning, did you? And what, is, what does Pharaoh say in response? Yes. You know what? Moses, Aaron, let's let them go. Right? No. What does he say? Verse 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? He does not believe. The people of Egypt do not believe. Well, they have their own gods. Pharaoh is considered to be a god. Who is this Lord that I should believe? Sounds reminiscent a little bit of the Jewish people in John chapter 2, right? Jesus is clearing them out of the temple and they say, what sign will you give to us to prove that you are worthy of doing this? And what we'll learn in Exodus today is that you better be careful what you ask for. You want a sign that Yahweh is the greatest? He is the one true God? Hear, O Israel. He'll give it to you. And it may not be pretty. Jesus puts his deity on display in John chapter 2 to affirm in the people of God that he is worthy of belief. And he has authority over things physical and things religious. The people of God had mocked or turned the temple of God into a mockery. They had become idolatrous people. So why is Jesus so upset when he walks to the temple and he sees these money changers in the temple courts? Well, In that time, you know, Passover is a big deal for the Jewish people. We'll get to it in a minute why it is a big deal. But hundreds of thousands of people would come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And when they got there, they had to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And if they didn't have the exact right currency to purchase the oxen and the cattle and the the sheep and the the pigeons, whatever they could afford, they had to exchange their currency into the currency of the land to buy the things they needed to honor the Lord. And these money changers would charge a lot of interests to change that money. Kind of like if you were trying to exchange money in an airport, right? They're robbing you. Jesus comes in and he sees people trying to worship the Lord and people taking advantage of these people as they are trying to worship the Lord. And he gets upset because the people of God have turned the temple of God into a place of idolatrous worship, worshiping money, power, themselves. Let's take a look for a moment at how the Lord has dealt with idolatrous nations in the past. The Passover is a reminder of how God deals with idolatrous nations. The plagues. Now, you've got to recognize, the plagues are meant to affect the deities of Egypt. They are false gods. And the Lord is seeking in this moment to show the Egyptian people that he is greater than their God, if you look at Numbers chapter 33, verses 1 through 4, I'll put it on the Elmo up here because I don't think I have it on the screen. Now, I'm not always used to using technology like this. I know I'm young, but I'm kind of old in this way. All right. Can y'all see? You can't see that? Let's see. Uh-huh, maybe. Autofocus. How's that? Let me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Verses 1 through 4, of chapter 33. You, do you need a highlighter? Do you need me to highlight? No? All right. I don't write in my Bible. It's the inspired word of God. I'm just kidding. It is the inspired word of God, but you can write in it. All right? Here's what it writes. Or says these are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses wrote down their starting places, stage by stage, by command of the Lord. And these are their stages according to their starting place. They set out from Ramesses. Now, um, Ramesses the second. Now, if you look in Mark's lesson today, he does an incredible job of just kind of writing through or giving you reference to places that affirm that Ramesses the second is the Ramesses that is. Of note in the Egyptian narrative. I don't have time to go into that today, but for our purposes, we're just going to assume that Ramesses II is the Ramesses that we're talking about today, okay? They set out from Ramesses in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month. On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, on their gods also the Lord executed judgments. So it's important for us to recognize that when we're reading the Exodus narrative, and we're looking at the plagues, that the Lord is intentionally showing the Egyptian people that their gods have no business being gods when compared to him. So let's walk through the plagues for a second. The plagues, outlined throughout the following chapters from Exodus, have a lot of times been Grouped into groups of three, um, and I'm going to put this little chart on the the Elmo for you, so you can see as I talk about it. Uh, well, gonna ease them out a little bit. How's that? Everybody see it? All right. So you can see that the. Now let me just say this: we don't necessarily know that this is the sequence of. The, the plagues as they happened. But we do know that the author of Exodus decided to put them in this order for a specific purpose. Now, um, Mark does a very good job of walking through in his lesson today how it could have happened that they happened in this order. So because we believe in the inspired word of God, we'll assume and affirm they probably did happen in this way. But there's an there's a organization to them that's important here, okay? So you see that they're grouped. The first series, blood, frogs, gnats. Second series, flies, livestock, boils. Third series, hail, locusts, darkness. And the climax is the tenth. Okay, so there's three sets of three followed by the tenth, which is the climax of the Egyptian narrative event. Now, depending on which commentators you read, you could say that each individual plague dealt with a specific individual deity in Egypt so that the the blood and the river was supposed to offend the god of the Nile, and that the hail, darkness is supposed to offend Ra, the sun god, or you can see them as three collectives that deal with three larger deities. Uh, they're there's been discussion that eventually the Egyptian pantheon formed into a trinity of sorts with three larger deities. And so uh, the first series would be an assault against the deity of water, the Nile River, water, things of that nature. The second uh, deity of uh, land, agriculture, things of that nature. And the final one, the deity of the sky. So basically, three elements of worship. Water, land, sky are all offended by the plagues, okay? Now, it's interesting how the Lord does this. And I think um, Mark's narrative here in his lesson, if you want to open up to page 450, I'm just kidding, it's not that long. (laughs) Although sometimes it feels like it is. I think I just lost the page I need. Here we go. All right, on page five, thank you. I think uh, it would be good just for for us to hear from the the word of Mark today um, as he outlines, I think, uh, a question that all of us could ask in here, okay? I mean, how dense is this Pharaoh, right? I mean, after a couple of plagues, you kind of get the idea something's going on here, right? But it's interesting how Mark notes, and from the commentaries you see, that the Lord is using kind of common phenomena in the Egyptian uh, sphere of, of worldview, okay? So look at this for a second. Um, page, bottom of page four. Before I studied much in the area of Egyptology, I was struck by the seeming absurdity, if not outright stupidity, of Pharaoh in his interactions with Moses. Had I been Pharaoh, I reasoned, I might have, relented, have not relented and released the Israelites from the very first plague, but somewhat, by plague three, four, or five, I most certainly would have. So there's a hardening of heart here. There's also a, a, a sense in which when you begin to understand how the Lord is unfolding this, Pharaoh may initially be impacted by what the, the Lord is doing in, in sending these plagues. But there's a way and sense in which you can understand how he reasoned himself out of it. Okay? So, for instance, uh, there's a natural feature. Look at uh, number one, the blood, page five. God turns the Nile into blood along with all the ponds, canals, and tributaries that adjoined it. Even the waters and jars, possibly taken from the Nile, uh they were blood. Interestingly, Pharaoh's magicians seemingly duplicated this miracle. Now, um is this thing still up here? This is not on this one. Anyway, uh, there's the first well the the snake and the blood and frogs are all able to be kind of um duplicated by the Egyptian magicians, okay? But eventually, they, they're not able to duplicate them anymore, okay? Just a word of note. Um, so, hi- interestingly, Pharaoh's magicians seemingly duplicate this miracle. History and science have shown, though, that the Nile does on occasion turn blood red. Australian English scholar Greta Hor is often cited for her 1957 publication entitled Plagues of Egypt, which set out her scientific theories of natural events that would have made up the plagues. She opined that extreme high flooding of the Nile could bring rotaried red earth particles and flagellates, which contribute to form red tides. This, she reasoned, would kill fish, breed infections, and would also be duplicable by Pharaoh's magicians. Okay, So you see, it's a, it's a normal phenomenon, but what we see here is the Lord elevating them, heightening them, making them worse than they normally are to show that he is greater than the gods normally these things would be attributed to. Okay, so in every circumstance, on the first nine, frogs, there's a, there's a way in which you can explain frogs naturally in the time period that is said to have happened. Gnats, the same way. Flies, livestock, boils, hell, locusts, darkness. Even darkness, which can be described by uh, sandstorms and things of that nature. But the, the point here is that, In the signage that God is trying to display, they're elevated. Not in the normal sequence of things how they would have happened. They're more severe. They're more extreme, ultimately culminating in 10, which has not happened before. And so, sequentially, piece by piece, Yahweh is showing his superiority to every single God. Either individually or in the Trinity, he is showing his superiority and ultimately culminating in offense against Pharaoh himself, supposed to be God in the flesh, who could not save his own son. Sign after sign after sign showing that Yahweh is the one true God. He alone is worthy of worship. It's interesting to read Exodus then. It's a battle between gods, quote unquote. And here's what the Bible shows time and time again. Wherever Yahweh is involved, the battle belongs to him. Amen? So, the Lord deals with idolatrous nations by affirming his superiority and destroying their deities. I'm not doing a very good job of moving this along. Sorry. So what do the plagues communicate? The plagues show the Egyptian people that God is greater than any of their individual gods. He has power over all they seem to have power over, and his power is greater. Further, he is greater than Pharaoh, as I said, who could not save his son. Yahweh is presented then through the plagues as the Most High, reminiscent, again, of John's purpose in writing the miracles and signs himself. See the parallels here between the Exodus narrative and John's narrative. The signs in Exodus are are meant to communicate the superiority and sovereignty of Yahweh. The signs in John are meant to communicate that Jesus is the coming Messiah. He is God incarnate and he is worthy of our belief. So, God delivered the Jewish people from an idolatrous nation to form a holy one. An incredible story, guys. That in the midst of slavery, Lord brought them there to provide for them in the midst of famine and in the midst of Oppression from an Egyptian regime, he formulates a people. And interesting that as they are doing the very thing that God commanded them to do, to be fruitful and multiply, Pharaoh, as the god of Egypt, takes notice and tries to speak against the very decree that God gave his people by saying, we got to be careful here. we got to prohibit them from being fruitful and multiply lest they rise up and take us over. And God said, I'm not going to let any king or person claiming to be a deity take away the decree that I have given my people. And so he shows them, informs them in the midst of oppression that he is a sovereign God who cares for his people. Now think about how that speaks to the people that John is writing to. 400 years, silence between the Testaments. Here the Israelite people are supposed to are thinking that they're supposed to be reigning over the world. And yet this Roman Empire gets larger and larger and larger. There's no prophet, no, no communication of God to them. And surely they're crying out to the Lord, Lord, where are you? Have you forgotten us? And the word of the Lord comes in flesh to say, No, I have not forgotten you. In fact, I will make my dwelling among you. Pretty profound, the parallel. So the Lord is forming a people. They were to be set apart, rescued from an idolatrous nation to be a holy one, yet the people of God failed time and time again. They became idolatrous themselves. And if you read the narrative of the Old Testament, you see this happening, this unfolding, this tragic unfolding of them wandering further and further away from the Lord where they proclaim To Samuel, Samuel, we want a king. Because we want to be like the other nations around. We want the king. And Samuel says, listen, be careful what you ask for. These kings will take your daughters. They'll take your money. They'll take your your stuff. And they may lead you into a place that you do not want to go. And they said, we want him anyway. So they get Saul. The Lord rejects because he tried to be a king and a priest. More worried about power than honoring the Lord. And then they get David, a man after God's own heart, though, who was flawed and whose son does the very thing that we were concerned about. Had a love for women, and his love for women led him to marry women of other nations. And he began to honor their deities, began to worship their deities. And as a result, when he passed away, there was no direct lineage from him and the king divides, the kingdom divides. In fact, I've got a little timeline for you. Put this together a long time ago, but it's interesting because I don't know that we always get a feel for how the, the chronology of the Old Testament works. So you see, Saul begins to reign. David follows him, Solomon after that. And then, 930 BCE or BC, proclamation of Jeroboam as king of Israel, dividing the kingdom into two Israel and Judah. No longer a singular kingdom, but because of a divided king. His sons are divided, and now it's a separate kingdom. And progressively, each one—Israel, the northern kingdom; Judah, the southern kingdom—fall into greater and greater idolatry, until. Let's see where I put it on here. Eventually, the Assyrians take over the northern kingdom. The Babylonians take over the southern. can't read it that fast enough, I should have highlighted it. But you get the idea. Progressively over time, kingdom divides, kingdoms are conquered. Why? Why did the Lord do this? Why did the Lord allow his people to be divided and to be conquered? Look with me at Ezekiel chapter 33. This is not in today's reading. So when Mark covers it again, just pretend that I did not mention it. It's a powerful, powerful Passage of scripture. Verse 16 is where we'll start. Where are we here? I got so much stuff, guys. I do know how to do my stuff. Sorry. I'm usually like this scatterbrained, but when you got a lot of stuff to cover, you know, you're trying to, anyway. We're good now. Ezekiel 36. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. So remember now, God has fashioned them and formulated them to be a people set apart to show that Yahweh is the one true God. And remember how the formation happened, how miraculously it happened, how idiotic it would seem to worship any other deity but God after the display and the signs that he put on, okay? Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. It doesn't get any more graphic than that. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I judged them. When they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that people said to them, these are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations from which they came. What an interesting, interesting discussion here. The Lord formulates a people to exalt His holy name. Yet, this people who are meant to exalt His holy name begin to defile His holy name in the land that He led them to miraculously, by the way. After He rescued them miraculously, they defile His holy name by bringing in idols. And so the Lord allows the Assyrians and the Babylonians to conquer both the northern and southern kingdoms respectively to remind the people of God of their great need for him. He allowed them to be conquered. He allowed them to go into oppression so that they would remember to be broken and be led to repentance. And what does he say? The people of God didn't do it. They go to these other nations and they profane his name there too. That's how bad they are. And the people, of, the people around the people of God are saying, why did the people of Israel get How great is his God? How great is their God? And so what does the Lord say he does? I have concern for my holy name. Therefore, I will bring you back. But recognize when I bring you back and restore the people of God, restore the temple, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, that none of that is because of you. I'm doing it for my holy name. I'm doing it for my glory. That is the narrative of Scripture. If you want to do biblical theology, if you want to talk about the meta-narrative of all of Scripture, God's doing this stuff for His glory. That's it all of it, his glory. So what does he do? Sends them into captivity, and then he raises up a different empire, an idolatrous empire, by the way, the Persians who conquered the Babylonians, so that then he can send his people back into Israel. They can rebuild the temple. By the way, They do it with the Persian Empire's money. Because he's a God who honors his promises. Pretty impactful stuff. When you look at Ezra Ford, and you see God orchestrating the movement of history to accomplish his purpose. Yes, he allows his people to be conquered so they can remember. But the goal of any kind of judgment upon his people is always to bring them to a place of repentance. You need to hear that this morning, friend. Some of you may be going through a dark, dark circumstance today. Some of you maybe are feeling a heaviness in your life. Some of it may be the result of sin that you committed and so you have to deal with those circumstances because sin always brings about circumstances. But sometimes there are things that are brought into your life because you don't know that you were sinful in a certain way and the Lord is calling you to repentance. So the question we got to ask ourselves and the prayer that we have to pray is not, God, just get me out of this. But rather, God, what are you trying to teach me in the midst of it? Because any discipline the Lord brings in your life is always to bring about repentance and to restore you, to remind you of your great need for him. So the Lord restores Israel. He brings them back and he allows them to rebuild the temple in a miraculous way. Yes, there is some trouble. You can read in Ezra. You can read in Nehemiah as well as they're rebuilding the walls. There's going to be a, there's going to be trouble whenever we try to do what God has called us to do. There's going to be adversaries in our midst. This particular case, there's this tax collector governor who comes in to ask the people of God. Once Darius the has been raised back up as the new king, hey, what's going on here? I got to report to my king, the emperor, what you guys are doing here. Why are you building this building? And the people of God remind him of what happened under Cyrus who said to the people of God, go back, rebuild. You have my permission to do it. And then when Darius sees the decree from old, all of this is outlined in Ezra, chapter one and then chapter five, one to five. Um, Tatnai is the governor here. You see unfolding here God's incredible plan to rebuild his temple and to bring his people back to this temple. Now, understanding all of that, can you imagine why then the Son of God coming up to the temple of God, which by the way, Herod had begun to remodel and expand? That's why you hear the Jews say in the chapter 2 passage, We just got the, the temple. The original temple that was rebuilt, second temple Jerusalem, Judaism, was finished like 20 years after they got there. But then now Herod's coming to rebuild it. But can you imagine, regardless, Jesus coming to the temple of God, knowing how the temple got there, how it was destroyed because of idolatry, it was brought back in a miraculous way to show that God is the one true God. And yet, here again, the people of God have resorted back to idolatry. Can't you see the motivation for the zeal that Jesus had for his father's house? Not to mention that it was on Passover. Given, a holiday given to the people of God to remember how he formed them out of an idolatrous nation to be a holy nation. He proved time and time again how no other gods can stand up to the greatness, authority, supremacy of all that he is. And yet, the leaders of the Jewish people at the preeminent festival on the Jewish calendar are becoming everything that God rescued them from. And so he does some redecorating turns over some tables, blows out some walls, and he says, get out. You're not worthy of being in my father's house because you do not remember. You don't remember why God gave it to you in the first place. Significant." He's going to tear down this temple that just got built. In fact, it would be torn down by an army in 70 AD. Physically, the physical temple. Christ is coming to build a different temple. The Holy Spirit of God will inhabit us. He's doing something new. And it's better and John chapter 2 serves as a sign so that we may believe. Christ has come as the fulfillment of what the temple was supposed to signify. The temple points to him who allows us to behold the glory of God the Father, full of grace and truth. Further, his death and resurrection will be the culmination of, of the very event that they are there to celebrate the Passover. the Tenth plague, death of the firstborn. The only way you are rescued from this preeminent plague is if you have a sacrificial, pure lamb, the blood of that lamb over your doorpost. The angel of death would pass by. People of God delivered Israel by a pure and spotless lamb. Here comes Jesus doing the exact same thing for us. Makes John chapter 2 come alive, doesn't it? When you understand some of the things that the people of God could have been thinking. Questions for home. Are you remembering what God has done for you? You know, throughout the Bible, there's a call to remembrance. The very reason for the Sabbath is to sit back and reflect on what God has done for you. Why is that? Because we forget. Like the people of God, we forget. God does something miraculous, and we're really excited about it for two or three months, and then we get back in the swing of things, we get back into life, And we bring and raise back up the very idols that he delivered us from. So we don't remember. How are you doing at remembering? My friends, that's what worship is about. When we get together and we sing and we have corporate worship, it's about remembering what God has done for us, celebrating what he has done for us. How are you doing at remembering? Journal. Write stuff down. So you can go back and read things that you've prayed for, things that you've observed, and how the Lord has redeemed you. And listen, if you don't feel like you have anything else to celebrate, remember the cross. There's no greater evidence of God's love for you than the cross. That's something to celebrate and remember. How are you doing at remembering? Secondly, is that your true source of worship? When you come to worship, why do you come? Is it to honor the Lord or is it to be entertained? See some friends. All those, well, maybe not being entertained. Seeing friends is a good thing. And there's an entertainment aspect to preaching and teaching and that kind of thing. We want to captivate people, but we ultimately want to captivate them for the Lord to help you remember as we remember what the Lord has done. Is that why you worship? Anytime you don't feel like worshiping, you guys are asking yourself, what am I remembering? If you come to church and you're broken, you're empty, you don't feel like, what are you remembering? What are you focusing on? The loss of some temporary, tangible thing or the glorious work of Jesus? Think about that for a little bit. And I promise you, your attitude will change. Thirdly, are you zealous for the house of the Lord? Now, we all know that God does not reside in buildings any longer. He resides in us. We are the temple of God. Now, there should be a... Affection, a zeal for the people of God that formulate the greater church of God. But I want to focus on you individually for a second, building upon what Pastor David even said this morning. You are the temple of God. What does Jesus need to drive out of your life? If he came into your temple today, what would he see? Would he would he be honored? by how we honor him with our bodies and our worship and our thought life? Or would he want to do some redecorating? Finally, building back from the first part of chapter two, guys, Jesus has come to give us life in abundance. He's come to give us joy. John talks a great deal about that in his gospel. And my question for you this morning is, what water do you need to be turned into wine? Where do you need joy in your life? What thing is robbing you of your joy? I just want you to spend some time in prayer either today or this week and just give it to the Lord and say, Lord, this thing is trying to steal my affection from you. I'm going to give it to you and I want you to do something miraculous with it so that the thing that was a hindrance to my worship can be a source of worship when I remember about how you transformed it. Jesus is worthy of our worship. and All the signs are meant to point us to that. Who is this Lord that we should obey him? He is Yahweh, the great I am the Most High God, who saved us from our sin. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray you would seal up this truth in our hearts. Thank you for Mark and his work at our church and in this series. God, we pray for him as he leads this delegation to bring about justice in this situation. Father, And we pray as he would want us to, that you would bring about justice. I pray you would give him and his team clear thought processes and communication as he seeks to lead them, even as he has led us in this way. God, thank you for this church that allows us to explore the truth of your word as you shape us and form us into the image of Jesus, so we may glorify you, which is our desire in all things. We pray in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.